From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy and the studios of WPSU on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam, and this is Democracy Works. Who's with us today, Chris? Today we have a, a person who's kind of off our beaten track, but I think we're really uh, fortunate to have him. Uh, his name is Jan Egeland, and he's the Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council. Well, refugees are not off our beaten track. No, that's we've right. we've been talking about uh, immigration and the refugee crisis in the context of populism uh, quite a bit on the show. That's right. But the refugee crisis gets wrapped up in this larger issue that we hear in certainly American populism mm-hmm. and in others as well of immigration, illegal immigration, even legal immigration and how that might change the character of a country. So it gets hard to to separate out refugees from immigrants. And even even when you listen to what comes out of the administration in terms of immigration policy, it's sort of jumbling together, right? You've got these caravans from Honduras Mm -hmm. that are made up of refugees, people that are attacking gang violence. And uh, but but, you know, when you dig into it, it, it's also about building a wall to keep out illegal immigrants that have really nothing to do with refugees but are just coming to the U.S. for economic reasons or to join family, uh, along with even legal immigration, which the administration has been trying to cut for quite a while. Well, I think both with respect to um, President Trump and also people like especially Orban in, in Hungary, all those distinctions you're you're articulating are are not the point. The point is that this is an other. This is a oh, threat, yeah. and this is something that um, gives these politicians a very um, handy uh, way place to um, um, identify. Uh, the threat, and to identify what's um, why you are in this condition and why we need to stop it. And I'm the person who's going to stop it and therefore help you to preserve your way of life. And so there's an economic dimension to this, right. but there's also a cultural dimension to this. And I was thinking about... Um, well, this is especially the case in many European countries, right. which are... More than the U.S. sort of defined by a kind of national identity, mm-hmm. although the U.S. is moving in that direction well, and, and the and politics and kind of similar. Sure. I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a culture that's identified by place and by language. And, and you know, Orban was very clear about this, that we need to preserve this this Hungarian tradition. Or Le Pen on a certain right. kind of Frenchness. Yep, and, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so, you know, this all becomes this kind of... Uh, um, just a place to to put your 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 feeling of of being threatened here's here's what it what it comes down to it comes down to this person coming here from this other place it's going to undermine you economically and it's going to change your society in a way that you won't understand and it's going to undermine the very notion of what it means to be hungarian or french or german and there's a large element of fear that they are somehow dangerous and that's right. criminals. That's Even right. though, I mean, this we hear in the U.S. The facts really are do not line up in the way that the populists um, frame them. Well, if you're an immigrant, especially especially an undocumented immigrant, you have to be pretty careful about committing crimes because you're going to be deported. Right. Right. Not to mention, you know, I guess our point is just that this um, migration crisis from Syria, especially for countries that, you know, the secretary general, you know, represents like Norway, um, um, created or at minimum exacerbated this kind of opportunity 
for for a populist demagogue to to exploit and and thereby undermine democracy and that's why we're talking about it the secretary general is involved in you know very important work in, in terms of well it's very diplomatic work Right. In terms of trying to to, to uh, persuade countries to take these and to, to coordinate this effort. to coordinate the effort on uh, uh, to re- refugees, you take this many. Uh, we'll take this many. We'll figure out you know what kind of resources you need. We'll you know that is the only or the best way certainly that this kind of um, immigration, whether it's temporary or permanent, is actually going to happen. I think that's a pretty good point at which to you know bring in uh, the secretary general. And, hear from him. Okay, let's go. All right. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Jan Egeland. Jan, thanks for joining us on Democracy Works. Thank you very much. I'd like to, to start with some definitions. I think that the terms migrant and, and refugee are used sometimes interchangeably in the media and kind of in our political discourse. Can you uh, help us understand what those terms mean and, and how they might differ? Well, migrants are everybody who leave a country and go to another place. Uh, my my aunts, uh, m- many of my relatives migrated from Norway to the United States. I have relatives here. They were migrants. Uh, then uh, there were there are people who flee from persecution. It could be political, religious, uh, cultural. My, I, I had relatives fleeing Nazi occupation of Norway to Sweden. 50,000 Norwegians fled to Sweden during the Second World War. They were refugees. My father was a student during the Second World War of Norway. He fled uh, when they took students and sent them to Germany for concentration camps at one point. He was able to flee to another part of Norway. He was internally displaced. IDP, uh, internally displaced person. That's the largest group of people fleeing persecution. And then there is a fourth category. Those are the asylum seekers. And and that's how we in, in, in Western industrial countries actually treat people who come to our shores and say, I'm a refugee. And we say, well, we'll check. You are now defined as an asylum seeker. You seek protection here and then we'll find out whether we will give you refugee status. And can you talk about the Norwegian Refugee Council and, and how your organization works with, with these, these various groups as you just define them? Yeah, the Norwegian uh, Refugee Council, NRC, is a large humanitarian organization working for both refugees and the in- internally displaced people. Uh, providing them relief in the in the form of uh, uh, shelter, I mean ha- housing, emergency housing, water sanitation, food, nutrition. Um, we also provide legal help, legal advice, including civil documentation. When when people flee in uh, Syria from Aleppo to Idlib, for example, um, they their house would go up in flames very often. That's why they leave. The war comes to their neighborhood. They lose everything, including often the the deed on their house, uh, the the, uh, birth certificate of their children, etc. We help provide them also with that kind of relief. And there are three solutions that we seek. Uh, One would be uh, return, 
which is the, 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 the preferable solution to a refugee problem uh, or in turn displacement problem back to your home, very difficult when there is a war. The other one is local integration. Uh, it could be that they fled to uh, a neighboring country and little by little they would be integrated there, get jobs, education, and maybe even citizenship. And the third solution is relocation to another place. Traditionally, the U.S. would be such a place which generously offered more than 100,000 refugees, you know, protection uh, and uh, long-term citizenship. That kind of a thing is is something from the past because most of the rich industrial countries have become colder places for refugees. Very few um, uh, places, spots for protection is given. So it's now really return and local integration, which are the solutions. Sure, and let's let's talk a little bit about that that transition that you've seen in in the U.S. and some of the the other kind of industrialized countries. Uh, you know, when did it start, and and how has it kind of evolved since then? Well, it's always been there, really, in in both in Europe and in North America, and certainly in places like Japan and 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 and, and other industrialized uh, countries. That that has been a sort of a tug of war between those who say we stand for ideals. We have perhaps fled ourselves uh, earlier. I mean, the, the, the America, the first people, Pilgrim Fathers, of uh, fathers and others here uh, were were refugees. I mean, they sought a, a place in America where they could live out their religion and so on. Now, uh, of late, it's become. Um, a new period of great difficulty for us who work for and with refugees because there is a there is a wave of nationalism nativism in 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 very many places um, you have it now certainly in the united states we have it all over europe in europe it was much associated to the influx of syrian and others in 2015 when a million people crossed uh, the mediterranean and came to our shores and all of Europe panicked, really, uh, even though it wasn't more people than tiny Lebanon has taken uh, from uh, from Syria. I think there is a lot of frenzy. There is a lot of exaggeration. Refugees are not dangerous. And nine out of ten refugees end up in their own country or in a poor neighboring country. They do not come uh, to to neither America or my own country, Norway. Right and and yeah, I mean, as as you've mentioned, that was that was a huge part of the, the Brexit decision, right? We've seen it it manifest itself in the rise of I think Orban and Erdogan and a yeah. lot of the, these kind of authoritarian leaders ran on on anti-immigration campaigns. So I mean, there's certainly you know a lot baked into a lot of these these discussions. These are very complicated issues about national identity mm. and and jobs, as you mentioned, things that people kind of hold very dear to them. So. What is the right balance, do you think, between helping refugees and, and people in need while still paying mind to people who are already living in, in, in the countries where the refugees want to go? Well, I mean, first of all, we have to recognize that the main solution for people who have fled their homes is to return home. That That's the, I mean, the solution for the 12 million Syrians who have fled, 
half of them internally in Syria and roughly half of them to other countries, mostly to neighboring countries. Their future lies in their own country, Syria, really, uh, predominantly. So we need to have more work in diplomacy, peacemaking, conflict resolution uh, to make it safe and protected for people to return home and help them then rebuild. Uh, we say in, in our humanitarian work that return is the best solution when it is informed. People have to know what they go back to. Voluntary, they have to have a choice of whether to go back or to stay where they are. Assisted, protected and safe. Um, the, the, the other possibility is, of course, since some will fear going back. I mean, in Syria, the Assad government is still there. Many fled them because they, had, they were repressive. They don't want to go back. So they, then it's a discussion, is there a future for them where they are now? Could be Jordan, could be Turkey, could be Lebanon. So for them, in my view, it has to be two solutions. Return to Syria for the majority and relocation to other places for those who cannot return. And that's, that has to be a, a compact, as we call it, a, an agreement between nations. Some have to come to, to North America, some to Europe, some to other Arab countries in, 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 the, in the Middle East and elsewhere, some to Asian countries and so on. There has to be a responsibility sharing, and that's what we're lacking now. Uh, right. And I, I actually wanted to, to ask about that. So the, even these efforts to bring people back to their home countries, that in some ways requires multinational cooperation, too, yes. right, to, to be yeah. able to, to rehabilitate the governments and, and get the, the countries back to a place where it's safe for, for people to go. Can you talk about what those those efforts look like? <laughs> Well, they, 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 it's a combination of efforts. I was just now in Afghanistan, where my organization, Norwegian Refugee Council, is uh, one of the largest humanitarian agencies. We have 1,300 relief workers spread all over the country. I was in Uruz Gan, where there is a tremendous war ongoing between the Taliban and the government, assisted by Americans and others. Uh, <clears throat> and in the middle of that, very many internally displaced people and one aid group, us, the NRC, because there is a, is a war there. Uh, now, um, what we try to work desperately for is to, is to create a sense of stability in some areas, education, livelihoods, etc. We reach out to the parties so that they spare the civilian population. We try to get... Americans and Taliban who are now negotiating to have agreements that is not just military. How can we armed men end our war so we can all go go home? There has to be an agreement on how do you protect human rights? How do you protect women's rights in, uh, in Afghanistan? How, how do you ensure that people can return home to places that can be even been taken by other people? And then we, we, we try to work with neighboring countries, Pakistan, Iran, most importantly for Afghanistan, uh, to say, don't throw people back into a place that is so unstable as it is. It has the return as the voluntary, um, informed, safe and dignified. And then we take to call, to talk to Europeans 
and say, stop your insane uh, refoulement, which is sending back without involuntarily people whom were asylum seekers whom you find would not be persecuted. Don't send them back to a war zone as you're doing now because it makes Afghanistan unstable. It's, it's a mixture of things. And do you find that the nativism, some of the, the populism we've seen throughout Europe and elsewhere, also extends to these countries' willingness to, to collaborate in these kind of multilateral humanitarian efforts or, or, or some of the work that organizations like yours are doing? What I find now is that there is a race to the bottom, really. Uh, many countries are willing to give us money if we keep them away from, uh, from their country. Um, Europe was traditionally, Europe and North America were the, traditionally the most generous places for receiving refugees. I mean, and that has to be said because, uh, and, and, and I agree with those saying, why do you nag <laughs> Washington and Brussels and London and Oslo and, and Stockholm? Why don't you talk to Tokyo and, uh, you know, the Koreans and the Saudis and the Kuwaitis, all of those other rich nations who haven't taken many, any at all. Uh, well, it, what we're then saying is, okay, let's divide uh, uh, responsibility. The ideal solution is the following. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, is the body to identify who's a refugee and who's not. They register people as refugees. They also register who can return and who cannot. So they then organize people in a long queue, if you like, for resettlement and protection elsewhere. So if America went back to your 100,000 plus refugees, Norway would continue to take three or four or 5,000, which would be Many more per capita. Norway is a small place, much smaller in terms of inhabitants than Pennsylvania. Um, we would continue with our our uh, 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 people. Uh, the other 35 countries in Europe would take, uh, you know, a few thousand each. Uh, we would get Japan and others to take more. And then we would have a few hundred thousand every year. We would be able to solve the resettlement there. And then we would ask for people to have sort of large investment in return programming, which would be able to take millions if it's coupled with um, peace uh, uh, and human rights work. Right. So there's a kind of that's that's like a, a long term kind of strategy. But there's also like a lot of things that come up that you can't anticipate. Right. I mean, mm. you don't know where the next earthquake or tsunami or natural disaster is going to be. So so how do you, you account for those kind of unknown elements? In the age of climate change, where more people live more exposed to more extreme weather, we see so-called complex emergencies. I mean, even in, in Afghanistan, as I mentioned, Pakistan has a lot of natural disasters on top of war, uh, poverty, mass unemployment, etc. Yeah, how, how do we plan for that? Well, we have, we have very good people who, in the field, try to meet Every eventuality, we are, have preparedness uh, programs as we have prevention programs. But, but indeed, longer term, perhaps the most worrying longer term problem is that many more people will be displaced, not by conflict, 
but by uh, the forces of nature in, in the age of climate change, and we have to be prepared for that. What role does civil society have to play in, in terms of, of refugees? Oh, the civil society groups play a, 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 an enormously important role all over the world. Uh, actually, we, we work also in the field with civil society groups. In, in, in the Congo, we work with uh, uh, women's groups, uh, student groups, uh, church groups, uh, religious groups, tribal groups, uh, for that matter. But in, in our own northern societies, um, the, 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 what gives me hope is that people rise up and say, I mean, in all decency, let's help these people who are knocking on our door. We need to help them in the hour of greatest need. Listen, I was myself uh, recently in Honduras. I would recommend Americans to go to Honduras and see what the conditions are there because the gangs, armed gangs have taken over in a place that became destabilized in part because of failed American policies in Central America since the Monroe Doctrine and anti-guerrilla wars of the 1960s, 70s and 80s. Honduras has youth without any hope for the future. They do not believe they have a, a future in their own country. They don't believe they will ever get a, a, a job. They don't believe they will ever get a real family or a house or, a, or, or security. So they want to wander north in sandals and flip-flops. Uh, and there are no threat. But, of course, the solution for Hondurans is not in the United States, all of them. It's in Honduras. So there has to be an investment in, in hope there, which is security, jobs, education. It's, it's as easy and as difficult as that. The civil society groups will help receive people with decencies, those who who have no future in, in Central America, um, uh, and they will also hopefully be able to tell politicians that the people do not want to be uh, be indecent and 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 in, in contradiction with our, our basic values, uh, whether that is Christian or other religious values or humanistic values. We we, we are a part of a civilization after all. How do you see democracies countering some of these kind of uh, anti-refugee, anti-immigrant sentiments? And, and can you maybe think of an example of, of a, a country that, that has done some of these things? Well, I mean, democracy is not in itself, unfortunately, countering um, these nativist, nationalist tendencies. Um, I mean, as Churchill said, democracy is uh, is a very lousy system. It's but it's the best we have. Uh, it, what is the lousy about it is that you know you have a f- few sensationalist stories about one or two immigrants doing something bad in the media, and everybody believes that that immigrants are worse than others, which they are not. <laughs> you look at the statistics. Look at the documentation from North America to Europe. Um, the, the the way we can fight it is also through democracy in the sense that, well, I'm in the media all the time in my country, in Europe, elsewhere, telling people what we're grappling with, with, mil- with a world record of refugees, mostly women and children, who need our support and our solidarity. And part of the solution is that we receive some of them through a quota 
system. When people understand that, okay, I'm part of a system, it's not that many, we can do this. I, at times, for example, I, I, at times I, I, I tell uh, uh, Europeans, we felt overwhelmed. One million people came to continent of 500 million. So how come, you know, you have a schoolyard of 500 kids and one girl comes in to the schoolyard with her, her, her little bag full of school books. Should we panic? Uh, one to one, 500? We shouldn't. But that's what Europe did. So some of the countries that took no refugees or minimal were the ones that had the strongest reaction because populist politicians told the people and say, the Muslims are taking over of, of Europe. Whereas uh, Germany and Sweden, that took 60, 70, 80% of everyone came to two countries. No, we were 35 European countries. Two countries took way over half of them. Those have reacted with less panic than the others because in their society there was enough people saying it is not true that we're losing our identity. It's not true that uh, crime rate is going through the roof. It's not true all of these things. Actually, they enrich our culture uh, longer term. I mean, is America, uh, would America be a better place if it was only Norwegians who came over or only Irish or, 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 or is it better that it is actually a mix of people? I think it's much better because it's a mix of people. In your memoir, which came out about 10 years ago, I believe, you, you wrote that uh, at, at that time you believe that for the, the majority of the people, the world is getting better. Do you still feel that way now in, in 2019? Absolutely. I mean, th that's the paradox of of it all. I mean, 2019 will, together with 18 and 17, be the best years in human history in terms of uh, private consumption, public consumption, education, uh, health care, uh, uh, you know, life expectancy, dropping child mortality, um, equality between the sexes, uh, opportunity for girls. Best years ever for a majority of us. However, it's the distance between those of us who are, uh, are rich and privileged and those who live in war zones, uh, live in, in areas where, where, where gangs have, uh, and lawlessness have taken over or are refugees the distance becomes bigger. So for them, it is, uh, it is worse. Uh, so what I, take, uh, what I take heart in is there are fewer people to lift up from their abject uh, misery and, and conditions. And we are more people with resources to help them than ever before. So I'm optimistic for the future. Do you find that that people st still have the sense of empathy necessary to be able to to relate to, to others, it, no matter if they're, if they're refugees or not? Again, if the stories are told, if people meet refugees, those who are most against refugees have never met one, never sat down with one, never 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 understood who they are. Well, they are like us. <laughs> they're like me, my old mother, my two daughters. That's what refugees are. Um, the, uh, and I also see that in many generations, and I think this is very much a, a case for North America, it certainly is for, no for Norway, 
the young people are less prejudiced, more open, more relaxed, etc., than we grumpy old men uh, aged uh, 60. Um, so we, as we kind of bring things to a close here, we've had people on this show from all over the world. We always end by asking them um, what democracy means to them. So we'll do the same. Uh, Jan, what does democracy mean to you? For me, uh, democracy is, is participation in decision making. It's, it's as simple and as difficult in, in that. I need to have a say in how my community and my government, my country, is ruled, really. I do not trust uh, uh, that, that there will be a benevolent king or a ruler who will decide for me and and my family. I want to be part of that. Uh, so democracy is the, is the ability to freely express your opinions, but also to cast a vote to decide some uh, somehow and there is it's 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 a complex system really uh, and and it doesn't mean that people always are right i mean if if uh, i'm i'm glad there is not a referendum in many countries about the death penalty the death penalty is very wrong proven to be wrong uh, look at the facts uh, if there is a referendum after some gruesome murder People vote for the death penalty. So it's not an idle system, but it's the best system we have. Right. Well, thank you for your work and for helping us understand some of these very complex issues. And thanks for joining us. And thanks for bringing these issues up. Well, that was really interesting and, and really, frankly, pretty inspiring. This this. Um, this guy's this guy's a genuine good guy, and we're <laughs> it's good that he's out there doing this work. Um, but what was struck me, Michael, at least one thing was this um, this kind. What he talks about a wave of nativism and nationalism, and how it's really kind of almost worldwide undermined this kind of inter, um, uh, concern or or willingness to to accommodate these these refugees. Right. And, and, and it was quite interesting, I thought, when, uh, when he was talking about how democracies differently respond to, to the populist attacks on refugees. Right. And, and in, his, in his telling of it, countries that have received the most refugees are the ones that actually have dealt with it the best. That Germany and Norway, where, which have received the largest number of Syrian refugees, in, in his telling of it, are, are actually, and, and there's something to this, are actually under less populist attack than, say, countries like Hungary or France or, mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. others that have taken fewer. This whole problem bespeaks a problem within democracy, which is, you know, a lie can get halfway around the world before the truth gets its shoes on. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and so you see that he just spends a lot of his time just saying, no, that's not true. No, that's not true. But it's also, it's hard to say that it's not true, that bringing in lots and lots of people from an entirely different place is going to change the country. Absolutely. I think that's right. It's just a question of, and, and I think it is fair to say, you know, we should do this deliberately, thoughtfully, carefully, because these concerns are out there. And, and you know, even if they're not legitimate or, or accurate, they still create a political culture that needs to absorb them, right? Well, I, you know, we're, we're focused on the refugee crisis from Syria, particularly in Europe and in the United States, refugees coming in from Honduras and Central America. Mm -hmm. uh, 
But looking forward, we've got a problem on our hands. And the problem, as the uh, Secretary General was talking about, has to do with climate change. Yeah, I think that's right. But what the Secretary General was was, was arguing, which I think is, you know, I, I've seen this in other places. This is really critical. We're, we could have whole, entire Pacific nations right. that vanish. Right. So, or Bangladesh. I mean, there's what? Right. 500 million people there. Where yeah. are these people going right, to go? Right, right. And in what way are we prepared to do it? You know, on the one hand, I kind of understand, well, we better get our walls up mm-hmm. <laughs> as a way of deal because we've got, you know, we're going to have huge influxes of people. Right. On the other hand, we're not having any kind of rational discussion mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. What, we're going, what we're going to do in these situations, which are coming. I think we are just completely ill-equipped for the kind of um, thoughtful, deliberate, bipartisan conversation that we have to have if we're going to do this right. All we do are these continuing resolutions, which essentially say, oh, whatever we were doing, let's do the same thing for yeah. a tiny mm-hmm, little bit more, mm-hmm, a tiny little mm-hmm. bit less. And we don't, but budgeting is an opportunity to make decisions. What are we going to do? You know, the, the um, it does seem to me, and I don't know what you think about And it's this. irresponsible of a democracy. Oh, it's absolutely be, irresponsible. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. But it does seem to me that that one way, if if this political psychology argument is correct, and I think it is, which is that when people feel threatened, they're just less open to these kind of questions. And they become more authoritarian. Right. They're more if, open to authoritarianism. They're less... They're, they're, they're less open to otherness. Right, to, to, to any concern of the other person. Yeah. I, I do want to bring up one other point that, that came up somewhat tangentially in his discussion, but, you know, especially as we look forward to this kind of climate change crisis of refugees that, that we will have, and that's the fact that anytime we are talking about refugees and taking in refugees, it's always about Europe and the U.S., Mm-hmm. Right. There are there are other countries that are quite wealthy. Right. That are completely closed. Right. And it's a country countries right? in Asia, countries yeah. in the Middle East. Japan has always been, you know, for for hundreds of years, it's always been very much um, antithetical to the outsider. Yeah. We still there's still democracies. There's still democracies. Yeah. yeah. The, mm-hmm. Being open to this to to this responsibility is not something that comes with being a democracy. Democracies can just choose to be closed. Well, or, but I don't think it has anything to do with politics. I think it goes, goes much deeper than that yeah, in terms of culture. And and I don't know how you get around that unless it just becomes you know some kind of world government decision, which nobody's going to want. Right. So it's going to fall more and more on Europe mm-hmm. and on the United States, and we're already seeing. You know, really concerning effects, at least in terms of democracy in many European countries mm-hmm. from uh, from the refugee crisis, even in countries that haven't taken in a lot of refugees, just from the threat of it. I, I do want to say again that uh, that whatever you, you think about these issues, it is it is people like the secretary general who are forcing us to be aware that these are people just like us who are in desperate situations and are willing to risk everything for for the, for themselves and their families and that that makes a moral claim on us whether we like it or not and he is refusing to allow us to just like oh that's too bad right and i think that is um noble and and praiseworthy work that we that we um are right to to uh, highlight and um we thank the secretary general for his time and his service. I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. And this has been Democracy Works. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State. 
Our hosts are Michael Berkman, Chris Beam, and me, Jenna Spinelli. Andy Grant is our engineer, and Mark Stitzer is our editor. Additional support comes from Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. For detailed show notes and discussion questions for each episode, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. And if you like what you heard today, please consider rating or reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.